0: Well, fathers, with great joy that we've gathered today, it's always so encouraging to sing together and and to gather and to just know that we don't walk this path alone. Thank you, Lord, for the encouraging words that we've heard already from your word. And now take your word and use it well within us, Father. Thank you for the truths that we've just sung and that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death and hell for us and that we stand secure in him. Father, would you help us to to have the courage to tell ourselves the truth and to let the word of God do its work and, and just let it chisel us and hone us and work us as a church and as individuals that we would go from here, ambassadors for you, living out the name of Christ wherever you've called us to be this coming week. Father, meet with us now. Encourage us and strengthen us as you do so regularly at times like this. It's in Jesus' precious name we ask these things. Amen. I recently ran into kind of a funny story that was uh, interesting to me. It it took place evidently based upon a true account in the context of Russian history at the time of the czars. I don't know the time frame. Maybe some of you uh, who know your history better, the time of Catherine the Great is when it started. But one of the czars in Russia walked out of his palace, as the story goes, one day... And there in the garden, he found a sentry walking in front of a plot of weeds. It did not make sense to the Tsar, so he asked the soldier, why are you here and what are you guarding? The sentry stood erect. Sir, I do not know the answer to your questions. I have been told that this is my post and I am serving faithfully. The Tsar thought that, that was a little weird, so he went to the captain of the watch and he asked him about the post. He said, what are they guarding? Why are they here? The captain replied, sir, I know not why they are there. I know not what they are guarding, but we have done it for years. Well, that seemed even stranger to the czar, so he asked that the post be investigated, and the whys and the whats. They delved back into the history of things, and they discovered that a hundred years previous... To that time, Catherine the Great was given a rose bush as a gift. She had planted it in that plot, and she had asked that a sentry be assigned so that the plot would not be run over by the people. Six months after the planting of the rose bush, it died. But the post continued for another 99 and a half years until somebody asked a strategic question. Why are we doing it this way? Why are we here? That's the kind of question that we're trying to ask ourselves as we work our way through the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy. You'll recall that it's written by the great Apostle Paul... With, filled with spiritual wisdom and insight, to the young Pastor Timothy at a church that is struggling, Ephesus, and I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 right now, and we're going to pick up now on an interesting role, and you might ask your question, well, where did they come from? If you've been around the church very long, who in the world are the deacons and what do they do? Why are they here? Who started them? Well, it started right here in the early church, and I think you'll agree with me by the time we're done, at least I hope you will, that God has great wisdom. This is the understatement of the day. God has great wisdom in the way he does things. That God puts things together just right, and he knows how people tick. He knows what we need, and he knows how to keep his church strong. Our problem is understanding why we're doing it and doing it God's way and doing it with the intent that God had put it in place with. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we are, okay? And, um, We have been working our way, if you're new to us, we've been working our way through this book, and all summer we've been breaking down the criteria and qualities of the elders or the overseers. We've taken most of them individually, we've used this as a template for spiritual growth in our lives, and you'll notice in our text today, 1 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 8, that Paul goes right from the elders, pastors, overseers, all synonymous terms in in as far as I can tell, and goes right into the deacons. And notice that he's going to have a very similar list of qualities for deacons. Now, it's not our intent to break down these qualities in as much detail, partly because we've seen them all before. Um, He doesn't have as many qualities for deacons as he does elders. But um, I want us to just understand the biblical role of the deacon and how he's a minister of mercy to the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 8, Paul says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Verse 10, And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons, If they prove themselves blameless, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There it is, a a segment of instruction about deacons. One of the things I think that would be helpful for us is to first of all just define what in the world is a deacon. That is an interesting word. What is a deacon? What does that mean? And the reason it's an interesting word is because it's really not an English word. It's not a word that had any meaning in English. It's what we call a transliteration. You, You know words like this. Let me back up again and just say, though, this. Do you remember that our New Testament was written in Greek, all right? So when the Apostle Paul sat in his dungeon or wherever he was at his desk and was writing the New Testament, he wrote it in Greek. They call it Koine Greek. Koine meant common language Greek. It's a dead language today, nobody even knows how to speak it, but they know what the words mean and they've studied it extensively. There's another kind of Greek that people study that sheds light on things as well, it's called classical Greek, but, and that's a more known language, but the Koine Greek was the common trade language of the day, and that's how the New Testament was written, almost in its entirety, in the common language of the people. I think God was giving us a message just by that, wasn't he? He intended for the Bible to be understood in the language with which we could understand it. Well, deacon is a transliteration. One of, the, one of the words that you would be familiar with that's a transliteration that has taken on a meaning of its own is the word baptism, for example. In the Koine Greek, in the Greek that it was written, when they were translating it out of Greek into, into a language, and, and it didn't go right from Greek to English, but when they were translating in nowadays and, and even in centuries past, Uh, when they were translating our New Testament into the language of the people, of the people group, they came to the word in Greek that is baptizo. It's a word that clearly means to plunge into, to dunk down into. It's what baptizo means. But they didn't change it into an English word. There's a variety of reasons for that. Not the least of was doctrinal controversy among the translators about baptism And so they just took, okay, the Greek word, and and I don't know if this is how they said it, but it's kind of like baptizo, okay, baptizo, B-A-P, and we got an English word, baptism. There was no such word before that, now you have the word. Same thing with the word deacon. It's a word that sounds something like this, diakonos, diaconos Now, if you could understand Koine Greek and you could understand the language, you would know what it means. But if you just throw out the word deacon, well, what does that mean? I know what it means. It means a guy who's in charge of the building at church. I know what it means. No, no, that's not what it is. It's the guy who mows the lawn at church. That's who it is. No, 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 no. It's those guys that count the money at church. No, well, I went to a church where, where there was the pastor and then the deacons, and they were the guys that told the pastor what to do. What the world is a deacon? But if you can understand diakonos, or however it was said, it's a word that means this. One who waits on tables. One who waits on tables. Isn't that interesting? Hey, you guys from motorcycle land, you're a Baptist, aren't you? And you like to say amen. Go right ahead and teach our Bible church people how to say amen. That would be good. (laughs) Amen. All right? That's good. All right? I've already (laughs) preached twice today. You don't know what's coming out of this message. It wasn't supposed to be on the schedule that way, but here we are. It was fun. It's good. God is good, right? And so diakonos means one who waits on tables. And so one of the things that we think about when we read a passage like this is, okay, what's the big deal? The Apostle Paul has gone about this specific role of overseers. And then he says, and likewise deacons. And he clearly says, it is somebody who should be tested and proven before they're recognized as a deacon. And so one of the things we see is that when we read our New Testament, these are the only two offices of the church that we can find in our New Testament. There's elders or overseers, the spiritual directors of the church. And there's these table waiters. What are they supposed to do? Because if you stop and think about it, our New Testament is filled with instruction about believers in the Lord Christ that we're supposed to be servants. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? Servants. You know what spiritual gifts are, that when you're saved, God gifts you spiritually. Some to teach, some to to, uh, administrate, some to encourage, some to give. We have all kinds of spiritual gifts for the service in the church. That's the word, service in the church. We are clearly directed, all Christians, whether you're a deacon or not, that you are to take your spiritual gift and use it to serve others. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? Serve others. Paul tells us clearly in Galatians that we are with love to serve one another to serve one another. For us to get a a footing on this message and where we're going to end up, and this is part one of of a two-part message on the role of deacons and the deacon's wife is mentioned in this passage as well. One of the things I think we need to do is, is we need to kind of face a reality about the way we're hardwired. Number one, facing our reality today. Turn to Matthew chapter 20, would you? And let's use the disciples as exhibit A on how I think all of us are essentially hardwired. This is a very familiar passage probably to most of you if you've been around Bible land very long. And it's Matthew chapter 20, and it begins with verse 20. And this is that interesting scenario where the sons of Zebedee, his wife, their mother, James and John... The mother of the sons of Zebedee, Matthew 20, 20, I'm reading from the ESV, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, what does she ask? Okay, you got an audience with Jesus himself. Your son is one of his right-hand men. Your sons are close to him, they're disciples. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said, verse 21, say, to the, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Okay, they all understood that Jesus was going to set up a kingdom. He was going to go to Jerusalem, overthrow Rome, have a palace, have a throne, have an army, give orders, be the big cheese. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you, you know, if Jesus says to you, it's the clue, If Jesus ever says to you, you don't know what you're asking, be quiet and listen. Don't say, yes, I do, because you don't. Whenever Jesus speaks, listen, that's another understatement today. Okay, so Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. See what I mean? Well, what was he talking about? He knew that there was no palace. He knew there were no chariots and soldiers and thrones. He knew that there was a cross coming. He knew that there was spear points and thorns and cattails and nine of the lashes, hundreds of, hundred lashes. So, said, oh, we can do it. He said to them, you will drink my cup. And indeed, they would give their very lives for the gospel as martyrs eventually. But he says, to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. What What was their issue? Hey, 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 hey. What are you guys doing? You got your mom in here. She's a cousin to Jesus. She's got inside track and you're going to get the right hand and the left hand. I don't think so. I've been, I'm older than you. I'm smarter than whatever. They were jealous, weren't they? And here we have facing our reality. We love prestige, don't we? We love the way of the world. Our flesh responds to, to honor and our flesh responds to overseeing. We don't want to be servants. Table waiters? What is that all about? Let's keep reading here. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercised authority over them. That's what they were picturing, right? These rulers in high places, fancy clothes, lots of power, people waiting on them. It shall not be so among you the backwards kingdom of Jesus. Here it is, listen. But whoever would be great among you must be, say it with me, your servant. Listen to me. At the essence of following Christ is the responsibility to serve one another. The church, the body of Christ, the world of being a Christ follower, there is no place for those who like to lord their authority over others. In fact, that's what tears down churches. That's what destroys and divides the body. That's what cuts the heart out of people's motivation and ministry. But what happens at a church when people begin to serve one another? And our New Testament is full of this but I want you to see something else as we finish up this passage, laying a foundation of facing the reality of of what really makes us tick. We don't really want to serve. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant in verse 27, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That's the word, it's probably, it's doulos, it's bondservant. It's the idea of I have no rights, I have no property, I have no authority, my master owns me, and whatever my master says, that's what I do. And Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom, you got to be a slave, a servant. I, I, let's go find another faith. I don't, I don't want to wash your feet. I don't want to pick up after you. I'm better than you, you bug me. You understand? The flesh rebels against this, doesn't it? Jesus, though, is our ultimate model. Look at this. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow. That's the ultimate act of service, isn't it? Now think about this. There's somebody who was sitting on a throne, in essence the throne of the universe, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, the one that Colossians says by his word holds all things together. That's power. That's Jesus. Now imagine this. Then the day comes and the word gets around heaven. I'm making this up. <laughs> the word gets around heaven. Psst, psst, did you hear what's happening? The angels are talking to each other. Psst, hey, psst, did you hear what's happening? He's leaving. What? Who? The king of kings. He's leaving. He's leaving. The son, he's going to, he's going to go be a baby on earth. What? What? Do what? Why is he going to do that? Because he wants to go serve those sinners. What? It doesn't make any sense. It's not, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to be the king of kings and then to gestate in the, tummy of a beautiful young maiden girl who herself understood this concept. Remember what she said? I am your servant. May it be as you have said. I am your servant. I come in underneath you. He comes, I'm going to be that most helpless thing that has ever been known. And that is a baby in the womb. Man, king, what a model. Why did he say it? he said i he came not to serve to be served but to serve so that he could give his life on the cross a ransom for many that is the ultimate act of service isn't it he who knew no sin coming to those who were sin taking their sin upon himself serving them by taking their sin and opening up a door where he could give them his righteousness so that a holy, righteous God that we started this service singing about could now look at me and look at you who were dirty, rotten sinners, our righteousnesses as some kind of filthy, hygienic rag that should be not even handled without a plastic glove, and everything I can muster up in the eyes of a holy God look like that. But Jesus comes and gives me his righteousness and it is done as an act of service as though he's my table waiter. He's my slave. He's coming to give me and take care of me his righteousness so that I can have everlasting life. Wow. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know this salvation? Do you know that you can't get to heaven automatically? Do you know that you have to enter in by faith alone, through his grace alone? That's an undeserved favor and gift that he gives you. And this is what it was. Jesus, because God loved us so much, Jesus was willing to become a servant. Philippians chapter 2, getting into Philippians today, aren't we? Philippians chapter 2 says that he humbled himself taking upon himself the form of a, say the word, servant, becoming even obedient unto death, right? That is some kind of... You think it's bad to wash somebody's dishes or wash somebody's feet or pick up somebody's messy clothes? I'll tell you what's a a servant's heart, is when you don't deserve anything, and you actually, you do deserve something, you deserve to die for your sin, And this one, Jesus, deserves only praise, has never sinned, and because of his servant's heart, he's willing to load your sin upon himself, substitute for you and take your place so that you can come to the cross and repent and by faith receive this great salvation and stand righteous in the presence of a holy God. Amen? Amen. That's a servant's heart. There's the model. There's the model. Point number 1 of our message today is uh, facing our reality and our reality is back to 1 Timothy 3 our reality is is that we don't like to serve we'd rather be served but Jesus has an upside down kingdom and Jesus has modeled for us what service is Let's go straight to the text now facing our reality and let's just make this a two-part sermon and point number 2 would be point number 2 is serving with humility Let's see what it looks like to serve with humility in the church. And this is who's qualified to be a deacon. And Okay, so what we've done so far is we've just established the fact that in our flesh and being pressed into the mold of the world, we really don't like servanthood. But when we get to our New Testament, we find out that there's actually an office in the church that is made up of table waiters. We also know that all believers everywhere are instructed throughout the New Testament to use their spiritual gift, to model after Christ, to wash one another's feet, to serve one another, all believers. And yet there's this elevated position of some kind of an official super-servant in the church. The diakonos, the table waiter. It's interesting, isn't it? Let's see what they're about. First of all, to be one of these guys, you must be dignified. Dignified. ESV translates it dignified, dignified. And um, I think that um, the NIV got it a little bit better, I have to say, that I think that it communicates a little better. NIV translated that word, worthy of respect. Dr. Richard Mayhew, in his writing on the New Testament deacon, says it's having a maturity that commands respect that is it's the kind of person that when you see him around and you've been to their house or they've been to your house you've been at a christmas party together you don't go home and you say what a moron that guy is just no but the the more you're around him the more you recognize i respect that guy that guy is stable that's what he's saying. The first thing is, he must be dignified. It means to be honorable. It means to be worthy of respect. The next three criteria are in the negative in the ESV. They're in the negative, and he's going to say three knots. Do not be these three things if you're going to be a deacon. Number one, do not be double-tongued. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? You go over here and you talk to these people and say, oh, yeah, man, uh, uh, it was just uh, really a great day and it was, the temperature was just right in the auditorium and I really liked it everything was really cool. And then you go over here and you go, oh, man, I'm telling you, I can't believe that preacher is. So, yeah, I agree with you. And you. Wherever you are, you talk like they talk and you're double-tongued and you know standard. Double-tongued, that communicates right. You're inconsistent with your words. Or you say, yeah, I'll be over there to help you out and then you never show up. You mean what you say and you say what you mean, not double-tongued. The next one is in the negative as well, and it is to not be addicted to much wine. Number one, is to be dignified. Number two, he's to not be double-tongued. Number three, he's to not be addicted to much wine. I'm pretty well established around here as a teetotaler. I'm not a big drinking guy, um, and I think it's best for Christians just not to drink. I, I have been in ministry long enough and around people long enough to find out that wherever there's alcohol involved, it almost never leads to things that go better. You know, it almost always goes worse. And I'm like, why mess around, you know? And so he says, uh, not addicted to much wine. And the idea here is just like with the elder when we talked about that. He's a leader. He's an example. He's a model. And he's to be clear-minded. He's not to be out of control. You're not to put yourself in compromising positions or in situations where you lose control of your faculties or where you're not clear thinking. You're a man of God. You're honorable. You can't be honorable and be getting drunk. The two don't go together, you see? And so that's his whole point. It really is not an instruction of teetotaling. I'm not going to debate and argue how much alcohol was in, New Testament alcohol and so forth. Strong drink, leave it alone. Clearly. If it's capable of getting you drunk, stop drinking it. Fourth thing is in the negative as well, not greedy for dishonest gain. You need to understand that in this era, that the deacons, this diaconate, handled a lot of the resources of the church. You know that the church often was persecuted. You can think of uh, um, situations in the book of Acts where... The Apostle Paul and in, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10, he talked about taking offerings from one church, and then they would send it with a guy over to another church. And often the deacons administrated. It was the deacons who knew that so and so had lost their job, that they needed money, they didn't, and then they're gonna get money and take it over. And this kind of thing happened quite a bit. It's that it's in that context of people's needs and money and handling money and property in the church that we have that incredible story of Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted to be like Barnabas. Barnabas would sold some property. He was a businessman and evidently very wealthy. He sold his property. I think this is Acts chapter 5. He comes in, announces to the church, hey, praise God, I was able to make a sale on this property and I've brought the money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. The apostles pick it up, give it to the deacons and it's distributed to the poor widows, the orphans, the people in need. Ananias and Sapphira hear that testimony. That was pretty cool. Everybody in the church, when he said he sold his property and he gave all the money for the poor, everybody in the church went, oh, that's really great. So they sell some property and they come in and they say, we're giving all our money to the Lord. But they lied. They kept it. They lied and (claps) God dropped them dead right there in in front of the men, right? One after the other. And, and it was, had to do with money and the love of money and, and being caught up in materialism and not being able to use good judgment with the resources of other people. The other thing that happens is when the diaconate is working the way it's supposed to work, sometimes they will help people settle their estates. Sometimes they will have to come alongside people who uh, may be at the end-of-life issues and their their faculties aren't they're going to have to help guide people They have to make, make needs and... In, you can't be tempted to rip someone off. You've got to oversee the finances, oversee the funding. I think that is fairly logical, and it's much like the elder. We're not driven in ministry for monetary gain. We're driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read quickly on, and it's not that difficult to pick up what the deacons have to be. Number five, they have to hold to the truth with a clear conscience. Look what he says. He says, they must hold... The mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, verse 9. What is the mystery of the faith? In our New Testament, a mystery is always something that previously was not disclosed. Nobody, They didn't understand it, but then it became known. That's the gospel. In the Old Testament, the prophets couldn't quite put it all together. The writers of the Old Testament, they couldn't quite figure out. And, this, and then Paul said God gave him the stewardship of the mystery of the gospel. He explained the gospel, how it was going to work. Something that previously wasn't known that is now being revealed. I think that Paul is probably, it's best to understand this, as just saying these are guys who understand their faith in Bible doctrine. They understand what the Word of God teaches. Now, notice that it doesn't say that they have to teach other people the word of God. It just says that they understand and have a clear conscience holding to the mystery of the gospel, mystery of the faith. So I think what it means is that they they know the distinctive truths of Christianity and they hold to them. The sixth thing you can see is that they are to be blameless. Look what it says. And let them, verse 10, also be tested. First, let them be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let me tell you, that verse 10 is, in my mind, the strongest argument that this is an official office of the church. It's part of it. Because we're all called to follow Christ in servanthood. We're all called to think of others higher than ourselves. We're all called to serve and to give. These guys, though, have to be watched. They have to be tested. They have to be given some responsibilities. How does that guy carry out his responsibilities? I remember one time years ago, many years ago, and a guy who's no longer around, his name came up to be a deacon. And uh, I said, you know, and, it, and I tell you, I've talked about this before from the platform, what a serious matter it is in the duties of the overseers to cast judgment about people, right? To have the spiritual discernment. And the grace to know the strengths and weaknesses of individuals and to appoint them to positions of leadership or to say, no, they're not ready. Who are we? Well, we're God's leaders in the local church and you'd better humble you and get you on your knees if you're going to start getting up in the morning, take a shower, get dressed and have to decide who gets to do what. Who do you think you are? So it's a big deal. But I remember the name came up for this guy and after a minute I said, you know what? I've watched that guy and he never does any work. Whenever we have a work day, he just stands around. Whenever, and, and, and then there's somebody else, you're right. He didn't pass the test, see? He didn't pass the test. It wasn't just one time. We've been watching him for several years and he couldn't interface in such a way that he was honorable. So he didn't pass the test. You have to watch him and then appoint them to the position. So he has to be blameless Notice that he has to have a godly wife. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. We'll talk more about this in part two. But he's got to have his wife, a wife who's trustworthy. Why? A deacon, a servant, serving and a minister of mercy to people is going to know things about people. He goes home and he tells his wife, and the next thing you know, the whole neighborhood knows or whatever. It's not to say that men don't talk as much as women. Just saying, she has to be trustworthy. No, amens. Let deacons, (laughs) let deacons, verse twelve, each be the husband of one wife. Number eighty has to be a one-woman kind of a man. Remember, we established in our teaching on the overseer that this had to do. We believe, as far as the evidence shows, as much as we can tell, this has to do with his fidelity. His purity, his love for his wife. His mind is not over on some other woman. He's known. He's not known as a womanizer. He's known as a, as a husband who loves his wife. It's a one woman kind of a man. Second part of that is his home is well managed and his children are in order. We've seen this before under the elder. Makes sense, doesn't it? Can you going to go help somebody else order their lives when your life's a mess? I'll tell you something too, for young people here, especially, and older, but if you're younger and you aspire spiritual leadership, can I just challenge you with this concept? Begin to scrutinize your life and just one section at a time, start putting it in order. Your financial order, your property and equipment, the way you administrate things in your home, the obedience and and orderliness of your children and relationships. If you aspire to spiritual leadership in the local church, just start putting your life in order, one place, one, one shelf at a time. He goes on then, and he says, for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves, and people will respect them, and God will honor them, and they also will have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's spiritual reward to spiritual ministry. You grow spiritually when you're in spiritual work. What are some applications we can do and take with this and take it home with us today? Okay, we've introduced ourselves to the concept that in the church, there is this role of a servant who waits on tables. We haven't broken down what that looks like so much in, our, in this day and age. I'm going to tell you, there are a lot more than just be the lawnmowers out here, the guys who unlock the church and make the coffee on Sunday morning. What do we do? How do we apply this to our lives? First of all, I want to say that I think it's important to recognize that when he goes through this list, this is a position that is separate from the elder list. I think that's obvious, but he is subject to the overseers. I think that the word overseers and what the managers of the church and the spiritual overseers, that the diaconate fits underneath the overseers. I think that's the logical flow of the passage. I don't think God put a double-headed monster in place to lead his church. He's got the overseers. And then under the overseers come the table waiters to assist them in their work. Second thing, I think, is that this position deeply enriches a church. I think we're going to find out as we develop this a little bit. Don't you want to be part of a church that where the weak people, people who are in need, widows, fatherless, people who are dealing with life-changing circumstances that are out of their control, that godly, strong men who are trustworthy, who love them, would come alongside them and be there for them to help them administrate the physical area needs of their lives. It's huge, isn't it? I'm not sure we're doing a great job at this. I think there's all kinds of reasons. We'll talk more about it next week. But I think that this is something that deeply enriches a church to have table waiters. Janet and I went out to eat Thursday night. Don't think too highly of me. It doesn't happen very often. We were at a Mexican restaurant. We like Mexican. And it was kind of late and we decided to eat supper. And I was so impressed. I kept commenting to Janet and then I left more money than she was happy with for his tip. Um, not that she's stingy, I was just being too generous, but this guy impressed me. You have to understand that if I like go to a McDonald's or a Burger King and they're just not moving fast enough behind the counter, I leave. Janet will say, well, you really showed them. But, uh, but the restaurant was kind of empty, you know. And um, this young man, he, he must have been 18 or 19 years old. And I'm telling you, that guy was everywhere. There was not that many people there, but he stayed. He kept filling my glass. He was wiping off the tables. He was getting... Now, maybe he just had a hot date and wanted to get out of there at the end, but he was on it. He was moving. Everything was about what? Everything was about the comfort of the person at the table. He wasn't waiting on tables and wiping off the tables and straightening chairs for the sake of the tables and the chairs. It was so that the people there were comfortable. It was so that they were facilitated. There's something about a church that has a group of guys who are to just be facilitating. The guy moving, not just waiting around for something to happen, but they're initiating. May I help you? What can I do? How can I facilitate your comfort? What are your needs today? What are the things that you need? I think that this is a position that deeply enriches the church. It's not just some traditional thing that churches do for 100 years because we had a rose bush somewhere. The final thought is, Okay, thought number one, in conclusion, I think that the diakonot comes underneath the overseers. I don't think they're parallel. Number two, this position deeply enriches the church. And then number three, when you look at this list that we've looked at today and this concept of a servanthood, of a waiting on tables, it is striking to me that he never talks about their spiritual gift. He never talks about their physical abilities. He doesn't talk about who's a cabinet maker and who can do electric and who can rewire hot water heaters and who knows how to fix motorcycles and who knows how to put shingles on after a storm. He doesn't talk about any of that stuff. He talks about a criteria that has everything to do with the moral framework of their life, their Christ-likeness and the spirituality of their heart. It's an internal thing, isn't it? So number three is that God cares more about your spiritual heart than he does the skills of your hands. God cares more about the spiritual nature of your heart. It's a qualified position than the skill of your hands. That means that just because you can't weld or something doesn't mean you can't be a deacon. Build these into your life. Learn the joy of servanthood. What an impact it would be upon our church if we were all just tripping over each other, seeking to serve one another driven by a deep love for Christ and to model the kind of servanthood that sent him to the cross for people who didn't deserve it. Amen? let in prayer. Father, would you teach us to serve, please? Father, would you help us to strip away the old ways of the flesh and the parts of this world that are attractive to us, that make us want to be Kind of, the kind of leaders and the kind of people who have prestige and power and have other people jumping around at our words. Rather, Father, would we just be like Jesus, who just bent over and washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus, who humbled himself to the obedience of the Father and came down to the cross for us. Father, help us to recognize these qualities. Help us to, to just be table waiters and to just take care of one another with love and compassion, all for the glory of our master, Jesus Christ. Father, if there's someone's heart here today, it's hard, would you soften it? If there's someone that needs to go to the cross and recognize that even at their worst, right there, Jesus paid the price for their sin and by faith accept that free gift of salvation. Just help us to go from here and to live out the teachings of your word and be servants. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.